and stretch out, and we'll take about 30, 35 minutes for question and answers if there are some. Anything related to the meditation instructions or the talks over the last few nights? Or just generally about your practice and about the teachings of the Buddha, if you have any questions, this is a good time. Yeah, you know, just during that practice now, it, and many other times, it seems. <clears throat> can you say speak up? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it just seems to me like the, the natural outcome of uh, you know this one-pointed attention is, uh, you know, just the blossoming of attention in general. And uh, for me, it's uh, oftentimes when I just stop meditation, I'm walking out of the room or using the bathroom or getting into my car that, you know, that's, you know, really apparent. And, uh, but doing it like this, it's, it's for me, it's really wonderful because... <laughs> I'm consciously um, letting my mind relax around everything, not just, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm just gaining a lot of uh, trust in, in, uh, in that relaxation. And, but uh, maybe, if, maybe if I started with the sort of all-encompassing awareness and really did that, maybe that I would end up in the one-pointedness, but uh, at least for me, I'm, I'm noticing that it just seems like the natural evolution of, of uh, practices to, it's kind of unavoidable almost, you know. This has to come up more than Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Casey. Yeah, Kathleen. If the meditation practice of uh, open awareness is um, part of the Buddhist teaching, then how is it that other traditions don't teach it incorporated in the same way, similar ways? Well, I think they actually do. You know, Dzogchen practice in Tibetan and Zen practice is the same way, you know, just sitting. It's not that different. I mean, they don't articulate it exactly the same way. They don't use the same metaphors necessarily or images in describing it. But, you know, my understanding is uh, practice at some point matures to this uh, awareness, this awareness that's practicing non-clinging, and interested investigating wherever clinging arises. And even when the, the mind, that open attention, is knowing, seemingly knowing the experience of non-clinging, it's still very interested in that experience of non-clinging in order to make sure that there's really not any clinging there. Like there's a humility in that open attention that uh, we may not be knowing everything yet. So there, it's not a, it doesn't become kind of a a passive, resigned, open attention. There's a real vivid, bright, alert quality.
quality to that open attention. It's not dull. It's not like I, I, I got it, you know. And so I, I think it uh, seems like everyone teaches that. Well, you know, everyone teaches differently and emphasizes different things, but there is this very simple and difficult practice that's taught. It's generally not what's taught initially in traditions. Mm -hmm. That was one of the relatively unusual things, starting back with uh, Mahasi Saida in the 20s and 30s, is uh, basically leading with a wisdom practice. Um, And uh, and he had a, a very particular way of asking people to note whatever was predominant in the moment. Just keep noting all through the day, whether sitting or walking or whatever you're doing. You're simply noting. And, uh, and a lot of people have had success with that. And so there's been, you know, that, that was unusual in that there wasn't a lot of preliminary practices. That would be the first instruction you'd be given for the most part. But even there in the, uh, in the sitting, you were asked to just note first the breathing and then only when other strong phenomena arose in your experience would you recognize or note them. Other, yeah, Doug. Um, last night you were talking about um, clinging and suffering. There is suffering and suffering caused by clinging. And uh, my question has to do with... Um, you know, in meta practice, you're, you know, I'm making wishes to, you know, the well-being of my kids, the health of my family, <clears throat> safety of my grandson, my granddaughter, things like that. You know, and I don't know if, if that's clinging, but the question has to do when you're wishing or wanting or clinging to things that are healthy, like healthy body, safety of your family, well-being of your family, all things that are wholesome, it feels like I'm clinging to those wholesome things that I would want. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose it's want in a a needy sense. I want my family to be healthy and safe Um, as long as, as myself. So my question kind of comes in when you you realize you're wanting or clinging or grasping, but it's healthy, wholesome, you know, not hurting anybody sort of thing. I, I, I get a little confused at that point. I, I can understand, you know, clinging to, you know, something's not healthy. I can't give you an example. The healthy stuff. Mm-hmm. A good golf game. That's a good example. Well, you know, it's really about, you just have to look at your own heart because when you're wishing well for your family or wishing well for yourself and it has that feeling of generosity, like like you're giving something away, you're giving away your good wish towards yourself, giving away your good wish towards your grandkids, towards your kids, 
there's nothing unskillful about that, and you'll know it directly because it feels very generous. You know, it's like you're sending out your love. The love is coming and going. You know, there's that movement of love. But when you're demanding from nature or from somebody that they be safe, that I be safe, that has a tightness. That's sort of like I'm putting expectations out or I'm demanding certain things. And that's a fear-based movement in life, like, no, I have to be safe, I want to be safe. So you have to look at what, what your mind is doing, the qualities of the mind at the time. If it's mostly about generosity, you'll notice that feels good, that feels healing, I trust this. If it's mostly about neediness and, and kind of demanding and fear of change and fear of vulnerability, then you'll notice how tight and constricting those emotions are. And you, if you see that, you wouldn't want to be reinforcing them because you just get tighter and tighter. So, you know, when you're doing it, you just need to check from time to time and make sure that those wishes feel good. And it's like uh, loosening things up and uh, being more and more inclusive. And notice when it's feeling tighter, more constricting, and you know, more separating, like I care about my kids, but there's a sense like my clan as opposed to others. You know, not that you would say that in your mind, but that, that will be the energetic feeling, like uh, holding on to what belongs to me, what's associated with me. This is what, you know, the it's really the basics of Wisdom in the Buddhist tradition is be able to be able in any given moment to discern the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the qualities in the mind at that time. So that we're not dependent on somebody else telling us whether we're being skillful or not, but we can just be mindful of how it is in the mind, in the heart, and go, oh no, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right, or yeah, this, this is trustworthy. Yeah, Missy. On that same note, in meta practice, um, last night, the, what we kept saying, what you were telling us to think or say in our minds was, um, may this person always be happy, may they be increasingly happy, something like that. Yeah, may your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end. Yeah. Um, and then my mind would go, but that's not realistic, because life is like this, and it seemed to go against... Buddhism in that you take whatever comes. You know? Yeah. So but the wish, argument. you know, we can have that wish, even though we know life goes up and down, even though we know everybody has their own particular share of suffering and difficulty in life, still I can have the wish that your happiness continue, that it increase, that it never end. So there's nothing in the way of me wishing your well-being to continue and increase and never end even though I perfectly well know that, you know, chances are you're going to have your share of suffering, that there will be bumps at least, if not major, holes that you fall into in life. Still, that's not my wish. You know, my wish is that your happiness continue, that it increase and never end. So, what we're looking at is this beautiful wish, and you can articulate it differently. There's no right or wrong way to, like, how you language it. But you're... You're putting words in order to support, like to direct the attention to that actual feeling, emotional feeling, where of generosity, like the heart's wishing well for this other person. 
And that wishing well isn't uh, disturbed by the facts on the ground. We can care about somebody, we can appreciate somebody, we can love somebody regardless of how life is unfolding for them or for us. And that's the great thing about these beautiful emotions. They're called immeasurable or boundless precisely because they're not affected by the conditions on the ground. Right? You can love something like people with kids. You know, they love their kids when they throw food at them. They love their kids when they're behaving. They just love their kids. They don't throw the kid out of their heart when they don't behave or something like that. And uh, this is what we're cultivating, you know, that generosity of the heart, that generosity of goodness. So it's always a little tricky how you articulate it. You want to use words that really help to uncover this sort of upwelling, this immeasurable upwelling of the heart. Like it doesn't run out because all of a sudden something's changed for them. Yeah, it's a good question though. Yeah, Linda. This might be really um, superficial, in which case you can do it quickly. I'm, I'm just so interested in, in, like in the Christian tradition, hope is a huge thing, and wishes are kind of like, you know, nothing. You know, it's like a wish, but a hope. And it seems like in Buddhism it's kind of the opposite, that wishing is good. And I mean, is it just semantics? or You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I'm not... I'm not as familiar these days with, you know, how people articulate it in Christian churches, but um, I think that the key, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, the key is the quality of the intention in the mind. So some intentions have sort of a stingy, tight feeling, you know, and hope. I'm not saying as everyone else uses the word hope, but you can at least imagine how hope can have that tight feeling. Like, I hope this happens. I hope God is, you know, shining His grace down on me or something like that. And it can have maybe fear in it. So the idea is to find, you know, whether you like the word wishing or not, to find something that um, is directly, we can see directly that it's good, that it's beautiful, and that it it um, immediately begins to manifest this immeasurable, boundless quality. So it has the qualities that, you know, maybe, I don't know, uh, sometimes people refer to as God in the sense that it's not limited. You know, and that's what we're trying to uncover with qualities like kindness and forgiveness and patience and gratitude and appreciation and equanimity that it's a boundless quality. The more we see it, the more we uncover it, the bigger, the more um, nimble, the more potent it is. And uh, so we're sort of removing the dust and the rocks and something begins to move and we really appreciate that movement and we set it to work. You know, we kind of let it bring us out into the world, even if we're sitting in a cave, you know, but we're connecting. Because... Not because it's a good thing to do, but that's what that energy does. It includes everything. It's able to be with everything. It's able to be right in the middle of everything without things needing to be different than they are. So in a way, it's the active side of wisdom. You know, that generosity of the heart is the active side of wisdom. So it is different in the sense of we're not, at least in you know Theravada Buddhism, we're not asking 
some force to come down and save us. Yeah. Well, hope sometimes has that idea that, uh, you know, we're hoping to be saved, uh, hoping for grace. I don't know, I'm not sure what you meant by it. Yeah, but we're, we're, we're actively the one that's wishing. You know, it's like we're giving. So the wishing isn't like wishing for us. So that's an important thing. Like when you're doing loving kindness for yourself, I mean, you can put yourself at the receiving end, but generally the way we're practicing is at the giving end. We're the one that's giving. The heart, we're, we're uncovering something in the heart that wants to move out, wants to upwell and flow out into the world. Yeah, Molly. I kind of came in on the middle, but I just wanted to say something about Meta. I first learned about Meta. I was at a Vipassana retreat led by Michelle McDonald Smith, or Smith, or whichever she was. <laughs> Michelle. Michelle, anyway, and um, at Diamond Sangha. And there was about 20 people at the retreat, and they were talking about, she's talking about Meta, and, and somebody in the room, Gloria, said it, it changed her life. And I'm like, how can a bunch of phrases change your life? And then I kind of sat there with it, and I asked Michelle, I said, Michelle, what if you're really angry at someone, you know, and you just like saying those words, it's like, you know, and you just don't mean it. And she said, you don't have to mean it. She said, just send it out. And so I think it was the following weekend, my husband and I took a trip with the kids to the Big Island. And in my opinion, he was stuck in horribly grumpy and nasty, and he didn't want to go out for dinner, and I was furious. And... And so my daughter said, I'll go with you, Mom, you know, which was really sweet. So trying to stay present with dinner, I kept in the back of my mind, may Roger be filled with loving kindness, may Roger be safe and well, may Roger be peaceful and at ease, may Roger be happy. And when I started saying it, you know, uh, it was like, may Roger be filled with loving kindness, may Roger, you know, a lot of anger there. But it was in the back of my mind and my unconscious constantly for like an hour. And I got back to the hotel room, and Roger was corked out on the bed, you know, just like... And I was like, I looked at him, and I had no anger. I had only joy. And I was like, what? <laughs> okay, well, maybe maybe I get this. And then I, 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 I went on later to tell my 80-something-year-old mother about this practice, and I said, okay, this is very interesting. I said... Is there anybody in your life that you really can't stand or really irritates you? And she goes, yeah, there's this lady at the bank. You know, I can't stand her. She's always so grumpy. I said, well, next time you see her, just think, you know, think these phrases or whatever. Doesn't have to be these phrases. You know, she'd be filled with love. And my mom later told me, so she went to the bank, and there's this really irritating lady. And my 80-something-year-old mom said these phrases. And she said, you know, when I left the bank, she said, I had no, no more bad feelings about this person. I just, she said, that really, that really works. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, Meta, I must say now still, too, at that point, has changed my life because it's enabled me to, not that this is good or bad, but to stay in a very difficult relationship, um, but not keeping all this anger in my heart by just... I mean, Meta's got me through a million things. It's put me to sleep when I'm really upset, just over and over. And of course, first it's made Molly, made Molly, made Molly, made Molly, because <laughs> I realize how much I'm suffering, and then I switch it. But it's it's life-saving. And, and in fact, I know um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it, but in my opinion, not quite enough. 
Um, and um, I'm a member of this order of interbeing, so I'm like trying to put out metta whenever I can. But I love the way Vipassana has total retreats about nothing but loving kindness because it is so important. I mean, it is just really nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks for your sharing, Molly. Yeah. Let's have the hand up. Yeah, Jen. Um, I really appreciate when you started the body scan today and um, you said that focusing on the breath is really key. You know, just letting the body breathe. It knows how to breathe. Like, and I can just watch it breathe in and out. And, um, I've had kind of a rough morning and just having that break is really nice. And as soon as we switched to open awareness, a lot of emotion was coming up again. And, and I think there's a training with the breath. Like you just let it come and go and it's the same with these emotions, like, it really is effortless, it just, the body knows how to process pain, it knows, the heart knows what to do, I don't have to know what to do, and the ego doesn't have to get involved, this has to step aside and, and watch this come and go, and, um, and that too is really healing, and I, I think they're, they're linked, I needed a break, you know, focusing on the breath gave me that comfort, um, and it's also training me just to let this move and not um, let the body do what it needs to do and get out of the way. Yeah. And that's what we do with babies too, you know, if they get overstimulated and cranky. You know, we find a quiet spot, we hold them, we walk with them, we coo, we hum, we comfort them. And we keep them really safe in a really safe, protected environment for a while. You know, but then other times... The baby's really ready to go out and explore. You know, it doesn't want to be held by the mom or the dad. It really, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it crawls around, walks around, touches things, puts things in its mouth, looks around. But then, you know, if it gets a little overwhelmed, you know, you ever watch it, babies, they sort of have radar for where mom or dad, and they run back. And sometimes they only need to see that mom and dad is still there, and then they run away again. And it's a little bit like that, you know, with our different skillful means. Some skillful means are much more protecting and comforting, and other skillful means are much more at the exploration, investigation side. But we need both, you know, and depending on... And it's not just like we need one in the beginning and the other at the end, because our practice is cycling all the time through difficult stuff where we need a lot of protection and safety at times when we really... uh, We really don't want to be confined by safety. You know, we really come alive at the edge of what's known. And uh, that's where we need to be. That's where we're alive. Yeah, Nancy. That reminds me, Mark, I think the sheet that you had on the, on the board out there about skillful means, it's not there. I, I wonder if we can, um, can we access that online or something? The 37? Yeah. Uh, yeah, whoever took that, why don't we keep that out until the very end uh, so people can look at it. And yes, it's at Saida's website. Uh, I think it's just saidautejania.org. Yeah. Well, it's on the it's on the box with the books that that website. <laughs> it's just his name, which is also on the book and .org. Uh, I don't think any periods. Ooh, the the letter U just is sort of like Mister. It's for men, um, you know. 
So that's what that is. And Sayadaw just means teacher. Any other questions? Yeah. That's the... Could you say a little more about, like last night you paired up letting go and letting in, and I was just wondering, like, do you need to let go before you let in, or is it possible to let in before you let go? Yeah, I mean, I, it so much depends on sort of how we're defining these terms, but I think generally the way I was thinking of it at least is that, you know, letting in as a skillful means comes before letting go as a skillful means. That you have to, you can't really let go of something you haven't touched or seen or opened to or let in. In fact, you could say that the letting go arises naturally and effortlessly when things have been let in. And this is true not just in terms of difficult experiences like pain that you need, you want to let go of, resentments that you want to let go of, but even other things like, um, I think it was Sharon has this nice example, and I bet many of us have examples that are similar where because for some reason we have had gotten on a, a roll around giving and being generous and the importance of being generous, that we've given things away before we've really let them in. And really appreciated them, and uh, and then it, it, we end up being really hungry. It's not we don't actually get the joy of giving because we're feeling needy, and we only gave because we thought we should give. You know, we didn't give because we wanted to give. So it's really important to really let things land, the good stuff, like really take it in before we feel obliged to do anything. So that that way, the giving is a natural response. So when we really let in something that's painful or negative, what we get from that is we really get that this should be let go of. And then the letting go is very natural. It isn't even something we have to do. Same thing with something beautiful. We want to let in somebody's love, somebody's appreciation, you know, any of the good things in our life, really let them in before we let them go until we're full, until we've had the healing we've needed from that particular experience. And then letting go doesn't mean we push it away. It just means we're no longer holding. I think in Rev. Anderson's book, Being Upright, he, he gives the example of a little child, you know, uh, again, holding the finger of a parent, really holding, really holding, until they don't need to hold, and then they just let go. And uh, But, you know, for a while, they, they're, they're, they're dependent. Until the, in the moment they're not dependent, not needy, and then they let go, and then later they need, and they hold. Yeah, Nancy. Well, I'm wondering, it seems to me that letting in is kind of like acceptance, either of the good stuff or the bad stuff, and it kind of have to accept and know and understand before, before you can let go. Is that the same sort of process? Yeah, though I, because I had sort of used acceptance a little earlier, so I was trying to make a slightly different point, although related for sure, okay. about letting in, about being undefended, and uh, letting experiences have their effect on the body, mind, heart. Like really let them in, um, not afraid of, because it's going to change us. Every experience we let in changes us, and so we're submitting in a way to this co-authoring process of being alive, really letting things in. 
being vulnerable. A couple minutes left if there's anything else. Would you want to let in, you know, everything? Because, you know, there could be unwholesome thoughts or just too much stimulation. It's not the best situation to allow letting in. Yeah. Well, it just depends on how much uh, wisdom is there. And part of the wisdom, <laughs> part of what wisdom is, is some sense of uh, how much space there is in the mind. It knows how much space. And so, like, don't you, isn't this true for all of us already that when something's arising, some old pattern, and we know better, you know, we know where that road leads, you know, as it's arising, it's like, oh no, I can't go there. And that's a fear, you know, isn't it? But a relatively skillful fear where we're saying, no, I'm not going to go there, I'm going to redirect my attention somewhere else. I'm going to remove myself from that situation because it's dangerous. Um, you know, like it could be, you know, the classic example is an old partner that you've, you know, been in and out of relationship with and it's always been, it's always like brought out the worst of you when you're in that relationship and it's very clear to you that it's not good for either of you to be in the relationship and there the person is again and you guys are starting to get entangled and you're, you're starting to forget all the reasons you broke up last time or something like that. And, uh, and then, you're, then, you know, let's say enough wisdom arises that says just walk out of the room, <laughs> you know. Just get yourself out of that orbit that you're in right now. Just remove yourself. And you, you do. And, and it is a little bit that aversive, no fear-based, but maybe someday there's enough wisdom that you can be right there and you can feel all that's getting triggered, but you're not confused by any of it. You're not confused by the attraction. You're not confused by the whatever emotions that might be there. And you don't need to rely on the fear to protect yourself. So, yeah, I think absolutely. Until, we're, until the heart is completely free, Free, meaning it's not confused by emotions, it's not confused by conditioned mental activity, then uh, we need to sometimes remove ourselves from situations. I mean, I can, um, you know, I consider myself a, a serious practitioner, but I can think of a number of situations that I know better than to be in because I know I won't be skillful in it. I mean, if I ended up in it, I'd just do the best I could. But it's much better for me to avoid it all outright. Mark, um, in that way of um, confusion, the meaning of confusion is part of that, that um, getting caught up in the, like the compulsion to go this way or to, to do that or to is that part of it is that compulsivity yeah but it's more that the that compulsion arises and the lack of clarity the lack of wisdom confused is confused by that compulsion and it thinks it's me I have this impulse I'm feeling as opposed to that's just the feeling being known 
It's not personal. And it's a big difference. When it feels personal, it's very hard not to be swept away by it. But when it's just an impulse being known in the moment, then it's relatively easy to let just that. You can't stop the impulse, but you can just let it, in a sense, move right through you. You're not, it's not catching any friction or having any resistance. It's just a movement of emotional energy, mental energy. But it doesn't have to be impactful. You know, it's just that feeling moving through. And we don't have to believe it. Like, this is probably true for all of us, because, you know, maybe we used to be addicted to this or that, used to drink a lot. You know, I don't drink now. Um, I used to when I was younger. And, you know, and when I'm with a bunch of people who are drinking, I feel that compulsion to want to have a beer. Um, I like that high. I always like that high you get, you know, when you have a couple drinks. And, you know, it's been decades now since I've had anything significant to drink, more than a sip of this or that. And, uh, but that desire, you know, that moves through me. It doesn't really land. Like, I really don't need to resist. I'm like, I'm not afraid that I'm going to start drinking again. So I can, you know, I can be in that environment and it doesn't... And I've learning to do this too with just uh, sexual attractions too, you know, over the years. Um, you know, being married and in a committed relationship, but still, you know, being attracted to other people. And initially it was like I was really afraid of sexual attraction, like, you know, i got to be careful. But now I've, I've learned slowly, you know, over the years that you, I, I don't need to be afraid of that sexual attraction. It's just that energy, you know, and, it's, and I don't need to repress it or try to um, be afraid of it. I mean, I'm, I still feel like I'm really, this is a powerful practice for me, so I'm not saying I'm done with this practice, but I've just learned so much from where I was, you know, in my 20s. We leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Thanks, everyone. So we have about 45 minutes of walking and then an hour of sitting, then a short break, and then we'll do our closing circle at 10.50. And people who have uh, one-on-one interviews, if you'd help me, keep them to 15 minutes each. And uh, is it true? I don't think we have a 9.45 person, unless someone just recently signed up for the 9... Oh, you have the 9.45? Pardon me? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, 845. Yeah. Did anybody sign up for the 845 just recently? Because it wasn't uh, like a, a half an hour before the sit. So then let's all move up 15 minutes if we could. So, Alex, you'll be right now. And then Missy at 9 o'clock, Roger at 9.15, Doug at 9.30, Scott at 9.45, uh, Dylan at 10 and Jamie at 10.15. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.